Hear the word of the Lord from Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king, to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Well, good morning, church. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. Uh, as always, if you forgot your Bible or, or need a Bible, you can grab one out in the lobby or one uh, back by the offering box. Um, I'd encourage you to have God's Word in front of you. Um, and as you're turning there, I want to share a little bit about a time uh, back in, in college. I went to a, a small Christian school over in Ohio called Cedarville. And I had the opportunity to play uh, basketball there, and a few of my teammates were from Jamaica. Now, before college, uh, all I knew about Jamaica uh, was largely from what I had learned from the movie Cool Runnings. And uh, in fact, uh, many of my teammates, they were surprised by uh, how much us in America really liked the movie Cool Runnings, uh, because at most away games, when they were shooting free throws, uh, the opposing uh, uh, fans uh, would very often be like, Feel the rhythm. Feel the ride, right? It's bobsled time, right? And so my Jamaican teammates were always so surprised by just how much that movie had made an impact on us in America. Uh, but, but anyway, one summer we got the opportunity to travel down to Jamaica on a trip to see where my teammates uh, were from. And they were not from the resort parts of Jamaica. They were from the, the inland parts of Jamaica and from Kingston. And uh, when we were there, we got to put on some basketball camps and we would, we would play basketball games and then we would share the gospel and evangelism. And so we would do usually a clinic in the morning for the kids. We'd invite everyone in the surrounding area to come out for a game in the evening. And then usually at halftime, one of us would share our testimony or we'd share uh, the gospel with them. Now, if I had just gone to Jamaica by myself and without my Jamaican teammates and without my team and the official uniforms and all that, like if I had just gone by myself and tried to do what we did in that week by gathering crowds and putting on clinics and teaching the gospel, it would have been really difficult to go and do that by myself, okay? And here's what I mean by that. I would have had to first work at trying to earn the respect 
and the trust of the people, right? Before they would want to listen to anything I had to say about basketball or about life. I mean, everyone on the entire island uh, looked more athletic than I was. So uh, what, you know, who is this guy coming and trying to teach us, you know, sports and teach basketball? What's up with that? And so I would have, if I would have gone by myself, I would have really had to really worked hard and taken time to really earn their trust, to really show them these things. However, I did not have to do that. You see, because one of my teammates, his name was Chris Walker, and uh, we called ourselves the Walker Brothers. However, you could tell by our skin tones that we were likely not from the actual same family. Uh, but, but Chris Walker, you see, is a much bigger deal in Jamaica than Grant Walker is. Uh, Chris Walker's uh, sister, Melaine Walker, is an Olympic gold medalist, all right? Uh, she, I, I think she still has the Olympic record in the 400-meter hurdles. And the Walker family there regularly hung out with other Olympians and sprinters like Usain Bolt and other people who are kind of a big deal. Uh, the island is small enough that all the athletes uh, kind of know one another and hang out with one another. And so Chris played on the Jamaican national basketball team. And literally, as I'm walking down the street with him in Kingston, People are coming up and greeting him. And uh, I don't think really uh, myself or my teammates realized how big of a deal he actually was until we got to Jamaica. And really, that was the same with all of our Jamaican teammates. They were kind of a big deal from where they were from. And so get this, there'd be times before I started teaching a group of kids like to do some basketball drills, or there would be times before I would share my testimony, and one of my Jamaican teammates would come up first and say something like, put, it, put their arm around me and say, hey, everybody, listen up. Like, this is my teammate. This is my brother. Listen to what he has to say. And everyone was locked in, right? Right? We like we don't know this guy, but 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 these people we respect, right? They're associating with him, right? So so he's got our attention. All of a sudden, everyone was locked in, right? If Chris Walker would identify himself with this like schmuck right here, like let's let's see what this guy has to say. Now now what was happening there? What was happening there? You see, something really beautiful was happening there. Uh, you see, my Jamaican teammates had already won favor in the eyes of the people. And because they identified with me, the favor they had was given to me as well. Like, like the favor that I experienced by people giving me their attention and listening to me was not something I had earned or achieved. It was something that I had simply received, right? I had received it. And this morning in Esther chapter 5, we're going to contrast the, the, the plans of Haman and the plans of Esther, okay? What one plan will be living for the favor of others and idols, and the other plan will be living from the favor already received from God, right? One plan will be living for the favor of others and idols. The other plan will be living from the favor already received from God. And we'll see how living for the favor of others and idols will lead to a self-centered life ending in misery and destruction. But then we'll also see how living from the favor already received from God will free us to live selfless lives that lead to everlasting joy. So go with me now to Esther chapter 5 verse 1. Um, are you guys ready to jump in? Yes. Who's going to go home and watch Cool Runnings today? Yes? All right. 
It's been, it's been a lot of years. That is not an official endorsement. It's been a lot of years since I've seen it, so I don't, I don't ever recommend uh, uh, movies or anything. Okay, all right. Esther 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, you remember where we're at in the story of Esther, okay? Haman, the enemy of the people of God, has been promoted to second in command. Everyone's supposed to bow to him and honor him like they would King Xerxes. However, Mordecai does not bow. And Haman gets pretty upset about this. And not only does he want to kill Mordecai, but now he wants to kill all of Mordecai's people. And so he gets Xerxes to make a decree that says at the end of the year, on a certain day, all the people throughout the empire have permission to go kill all the Jews. And, and last week we saw Mordecai and Esther could then communicate with one another through a messenger. And Mordecai presses Esther to go to the king and plead for her people. And Esther's a little reluctant and hesitant about this, however, because she knows the law in Persia, that if anyone appears in front of the king without being summoned, unless he extends his scepter to that person, they would be killed. In fact, in the Persian Empire, there was usually a soldier uh, somewhere close to the throne uh, with an axe, like just holding an axe in the throne room. That way, if an uninvited guest did show up, uh, they could be beheaded immediately. All right. They were just like on demand, on call. They were ready with the axe. Some of you, some of you do not like uninvited guests at your house, right? You can relate to some of the Persian kings. They were not big fans of this. They had the soldier with the axe ready. And so Esther's not so sure about going before him. She, she knows the law, right? She knows the law. She's a little hesitant. And she hasn't even really identified herself yet as one of God's people, right? She's still hiding that. That's still a secret to those in, uh, in the palace and in the empire, but what did we see last week that the people of God ultimately needed for such a time as this? We saw that the people of God ultimately needed a mediator, right? They needed someone to go plead their case. And us too, this is our need. This is, this is what we saw. Yes, certainly Esther's courage is inspiring here, but it's, it's also pointing us to a true and better mediator named Jesus, who is the only true mediator between God and humanity. And so for three days now, Esther has been fasting, and she's telling the people to be fasting as well. It's likely that she's fasting and praying for these three days. So don't skip over uh, chapter 5, verse 1 too quickly, right, uh, uh, where it says, right, these three days, on the third day, all right? Think of what Esther's doing for these three days. And don't, don't think that God's not doing anything in these three days, Imagine what those three days would have been like for Esther. I mean, imagine just kind of the, the turmoil and the anxiety that she's experiencing, knowing what she has to go do, and yet knowing that, like, this could be the end for her. Most of us don't like those three days of waiting and turmoil where God is working and he's preparing us for something, right? Most of us, like if we have that uncomfortable feeling, we just want it to be over with. We just want it to be done. We just want it to be resolved. We don't like the uncomfortable waiting. And yet in the uncomfortable waiting, we know that God is working and he's preparing. 
You see, it seems like this is the pattern how God often works on his people. For example, Abraham, after God told him to sacrifice Isaac, how many days did he have to wait till God provided a substitute? He had to wait three days. Can you imagine being Abraham in those three days? Like knowing God has called you to sacrifice your son. And just, I mean, can you imagine the turmoil and the, the prayers of just angst and, and, and calling out and crying out for the Lord? Like, Lord, please provide some other way. Probably a lot of sleepless nights there those few days for Abraham. Probably some wrestling in prayer. And yet God was working and doing something there. Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Like, you think that was pleasant? I mean, I think I sometimes envision being in the belly of the fish like uh, it's like a big open space. He's got like a little lantern that he turns on, right? And like a daily devotional and uh, just kind of like a quiet retreat, maybe Jiminy Crickets there somewhere. I don't know why that's in my head, but that's what I envision it being like inside the belly of the fish. But do you think that's really what it's like inside the belly of the fish? No, in the digestive tract of the fish. I had a nightmare about it recently because I'm claustrophobic and just thinking like, oh, no, that's awful. That would have been an awful three days in the belly of the fish, just waiting, right? He's just he's there. He's praying. He's, he's, I'm sure he's anxious. I'm sure he's scared. I'm sure he's, you know, he's repenting. He's humbling himself. That would have been an extremely uncomfortable three days. Think about the disciples, Think about Jesus' trial and crucifixion and waiting three days for the resurrection. Probably lots of anxiety, probably lots of prayer, probably lots of just waiting. And in the days of waiting, listen, if you're in the days of waiting right now, take heart. Like, like don't, don't, don't be so uh, afraid of the uncomfortableness and the, 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 the painful part of waiting on the Lord. Even in the waiting, God is working and he's preparing you for something. He's preparing your heart. God is working on Esther in these three days. She's praying, she's fasting, she's preparing, she's waiting to go before the king. No, notice the difference between this and when Esther first appeared before Xerxes, when she was trying to earn his favor, right? I mean, that first time, she prepared for a year to be in her best physical appearance, all right? She was eating the king's food. She was getting all the, the pampering and the treatments with oils and spices and ointments to appear her very best for that night with the king. It, it, it was a year of working for favor, for being her best self and earning uh, her favor with the king. This time, it's a little different. This time, she doesn't eat or drink for three days. She's probably a little dehydrated at this point. Her eyes are probably a little sunken in at this point. She's probably feeling a little weak and a little lightheaded. And what she's doing here, this isn't a selfish or self-centered act that she's doing. This is a courageously selfless act on behalf of her people. She could have kept her identity a secret. She could have gone into self-preservation mode. You see, the first time she appeared before the king, she had not yet really embraced or lived out of her true identity as one of the people of God. The first time she appeared before Xerxes, she was living for and she was working for the identity and the favor that would come with becoming queen of Persia. But here she has abandoned that, right? We saw last chapter, she said, if I perish, I perish. She has decided to identify with her people. She's essentially decided to become one of her people. 
and stop living for the favor of the empire, but instead live for the favor of God that has already been promised to her people. Mordecai's faith had inspired her, right? He had told her, hey, if, if deliverance doesn't come from you, it's going to come from some other place. God is going to deliver us. But Esther, here's your opportunity to participate in God's plans and purposes. And so what does she do? She doesn't do beauty treatments and prepare herself to be physically impressive or to be anything like that. No, she fasts and she prays. She essentially is, she empties herself. She leans into the reality that she does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the Lord. And she's recognizing that it is God who has the power, not her, to turn the heart of the king. So she's fasting and she's praying. She's choosing physical weakness in order to pursue spiritual strength through fasting. And so we've come to the end of these three days, and now it's go time. All right, we're at the end of these three days. Now it's go time. She courageously puts on the royal robes, and she appears before Xerxes, and we all hold her, our breaths to see if the soldier with the axe is going to get put into uh, motion, right? And so imagine her right now entering into the inner court, and we all kind of collectively hold our breaths. Let's hold our breath on the count of three, all right? One, two, three. <gasps> And the scepter is extended. You can breathe. You can breathe. She's safe, right? Xerxes extends the scepter to her, and she's safe, at least for now. And what does she do? Does she, does she bring her request right away? No, she invites Xerxes and Haman to a feast. She, she shows some planning here, right? She shows some wisdom and some strategy here. Like, who doesn't like a feast, right? She invites Xerxes and Haman to a feast, and, and Xerxes then uh, at the feast, they're feasting uh, with Haman the third wheel, okay? And uh, Xerxes says, hey, Esther, I know that you didn't risk your life just to have dinner with me, so what is it you want? Like, he, he says, up to half my kingdom I'll give you. Which that was kind of a common saying back then for kings who were feeling generous. He probably wasn't actually offering half his kingdom, but he was essentially saying, hey, I'm in a generous mood. What, are, what is your request? And so here's her chance. Here's her chance. But Esther doesn't come out with the request. Look at, look at verse 8, Esther 5, verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king... And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, some might read this and think, oh, she kind of, she's chickening out here, right? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think, I think this was the plan, all right? I don't think she got cold feet. I think this is strategic and wise, and it'd probably even come to her providentially in her three days of fasting and, and praying and preparing. Because you see, by her inviting uh, Xerxes to a second feast, by the time the second feast comes around, Xerxes will have publicly offered her half the kingdom on three separate occasions, okay? Once in the throne room, once at the first feast, and a third time at the second feast. And so it would be very difficult uh, uh, with the king's offer of generosity three times, it would be difficult for him to deny her request without losing face, right? And, and we all know Xerxes' 
cares about his reputation. We've seen that already through the story of Esther. And so she's kind of putting him into a wise strategic position where now uh, come the second feast, he will have offered her a, a generous offer on three separate occasions. This is a wise, this is a courageous, this is a strategic plan. Right, coming from a woman who has fasted and prayed, and she has, listen, she has embraced the favor that she has received from God instead of the favor she had achieved by her own efforts. Okay, she has embraced the favor she has received from God instead of the favor that she had achieved by her own efforts. And here's where we need to fight our knee jerk reaction to always compare ourselves to the main character in the story. Because if we're honest, I think we can all relate a little bit more to Haman. All right, sorry, that's kind of bad news, but, but I think we can relate more to Haman. So look, look at verse 9, okay? Haman, uh, Haman has gone to an exclusive feast with Xerxes and Queen Esther. He's been invited to a second one. He's pr been promoted to second in command. All this favor he's been working for has got him feeling pretty good, okay? So look at Esther 5, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman leaves the feast, and man, is he happy, right? He's on top of the world, but then he sees Mordecai. And I imagine you've got days like this, right? We've got days like this, right? Everything is going well. Uh, you woke up, you, you had a good night's sleep, you're just feeling good. It, maybe it's a good hair day for you, right? The sun is shining. You got some good news at work. Uh, you've got some good news from, from friends. You've got something fun planned coming up and just everything good. You're just feeling good, right? You're just, you're just ready to start the day and just enjoy the day. And then one little thing goes wrong and it totally just ruins and wrecks you for the day, right? Maybe even something small. Someone maybe gives you a dirty look. Maybe you, you hear some gossip going on about you. Maybe you get just one upsetting email, or maybe you see uh, maybe a frustrating post on social media, and it just spoils the whole day for you. I, I mean, Haman's feeling good, right? He's like, everything's kind of going his way, but then he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai once again does not stand or bow for him, and Haman is enraged. He's enraged, right? I would say out of proportion. He's got this out of proportion anger for what's going on, and he goes home, and he invites his friends over, and he gets his wife in the room, and then he pretty much throws a look how awesome I am party, okay? 
It's, it's an awesome sauce party for himself, all right? Uh, which is, you really shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't throw those for yourself, right? But, but if we're honest, this is what a lot of us often do, right? This is what we do a lot of times on social media. We, we go on there, we share about how awesome we are, and we look for some affirmation from other people. Or really, the more popular way to do it now is, is to, the more subtle way to do it is to more share just like how not put together you are, and then you can kind of brag about how vulnerable and real and authentic you're being, right? But, but at the end of the day, if you're honest, it's an awesome sauce party for yourself, right? You're putting that out there, trying to show people how awesome you are. Look at Haman. He's bragging, right? He tells them about the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, which certainly is something to brag about. Talks about all of his promotions, all these exclusive parties that he's being invited to. And yet, and yet, he's not happy as long as there is Mordecai. Like all these things are great, which in reality, but, but it's this one thing, right? This one thing. But it has consumed Haman's emotions and thoughts so much so that he says that not one of these good things he has, including his sons, is worth anything to him as long as Mordecai doesn't bow. And his sons are like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> not getting like a, you know, probably a good Father's Day gift that year. But what is, what is being exposed here in Haman's heart? What's being exposed is, a, is an idol in a Haman's heart. And an idol can be much more than just a little gold statue that you bow down to or kiss for good luck or anything like that. An idol is really anything that you love, serve, cherish, or depend upon more than God. An idol is anything you love, serve, cherish, or depend upon more than God. And usually to diagnose an underlying heart idol, uh, you need to ask yourself some questions, or you need to have a good friend ask you some questions, or someone in your church family, or someone in your city group. They need to ask some questions, and they need to be able to trace your emotions backwards to get a diagnosis. Okay? Haman's rage is a signal that something is wrong in his heart. All right? In the same way, when someone comes to the hospital uh, and they say that they are in pain, okay, right? That's a signal to me to ask questions about that pain. Well, where is the pain, right? When did that pain start? How, you know, what, how does that pain affect you? And try to get to an underlying diagnosis. Right now, Haman needs some loving friends to come in and to address his anger that is rising up in him, right? He needs a good friend that can come alongside and say, Haman, hey, I can tell you're angry. Like, when did you become this angry? Haman would be like, well, Mordecai didn't, didn't bow to me, and everyone else bows to me. I don't know why, you know, Mordecai doesn't bow to me. He's just being really upset, right? He's like, okay, Haman, but, but what about Mordecai not bowing upsets you, right? Like, 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 could it be that you love, serve, cherish, or depend upon the idol of power? right? Could it be that you want to be this successful and powerful and have influence over other people, and you want everyone to honor you and to view you as powerful, and so when one person doesn't, it just, it just wrecks you. Could it be that? 
Could it be you're serving the idol of power? Could, could it be you, you, you love, serve, and cherish or depend upon the idol of approval? Right? Could it be that you want affirmation and love and approval from everyone, and so when this one guy doesn't give it to you, you fall apart. Your world is over. Or could it be, Haman, that you love, serve, cherish, and depend upon the idol of control? And so you have control in all these areas, but when there's one little thing that you don't have control over, it drives you crazy. And you see, here is the sad thing. Haman's love and striving for favor from others and from idols has made him miserable, and it will ultimately lead to his destruction. And the same is true with us. If we continue to strive for favor from others and from idols, we will live self-centered, selfish lives full of ourselves, and we will be miserable in the process. So here we, here we go. Let's see how his friends respond, all right? Let's see, what they, uh, let's see if they lovingly correct him here or not, okay? Esther 5, verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, I'll give them credit. They did at least trace his anger back to the source, right? Back to Mordecai. But, but their solution is not to confront the anger in Haman's heart. It's to kill Mordecai, okay? It's to eliminate the thing that's revealing his idolatry. Which, for those that don't love God, this is often the go-to. Okay, this is often the go-to. If anything is getting in the way of your happiness, kill it or remove it from your life. Like, don't actually deal with the problem. Just kill or remove the thing that is revealing the problem. This is often what we see happen, right? So if it's an unborn baby, go ahead and kill it or remove it. Get rid of the problem. If it's a toxic friendship, get it out of your life. Cut it out. Remove it from your life. If it's your family or your church getting in the way of your happiness like or revealing your idolatry, then what you can do is you can accuse them of doing something wrong to demonize them so that you can justify kind of cutting them out of your life and removing it. So instead of dealing with the underlying problem, many times we cut out or kill or remove the thing that's revealing the problem. And so they recommend uh, Haman builds these gallows that were 75 feet tall, which remember in Persia, they like to impale people, right, on these big poles on 75 feet tall. This is as large as his pride, right? It's, it's, he's trying to create a, a spectacle here. And sadly, we see with Haman that Proverbs 16, 18 is going to play out. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so sorry about any spoilers here, but chapter, chapter 6 and 7 are not going to be great for Haman. Pride goes before destruction. Someone who is living for the favor of others or idols will be paralyzed from living courageously and selflessly. And instead, their idols don't give them what they promise them. Instead, their idols turn on them and enslave them 
And the more that people live for the favor of others and idols, the more miserable and selfish and inward focused they become. Now, remember, if I had gone to Jamaica by myself without my Jamaican teammates or without my team, like giving me the favor that they had already won, I would have really had to work at earning their favor. I would have really had to strive probably for, for years at like just getting people's attention to look at me to see how, you know, how great I am so that I can try to earn uh, a spot to talk and to teach. This is what Haman is doing here, and it's what many of us do our entire lives. It's, it's a miserable life, though. It's a miserable life. It's an, it's an exhausting life. And, and some of us are weary, not only from working for the favor of others and idols, but also we're weary from working for the favor of God. Like, we, we, in our own strength, we strive and we work and we labor to be a good person, and yet we keep failing and falling and wondering if our striving will ever be enough to win God's favor. But when did Esther become empowered to be selflessly courageous? It was when she stopped working for her favor and instead lived from the favor that had already been given to her by God. It was when she decided to become one of her people. Listen, church, here's why our hearts awaken when we read the book of Esther, even though Esther does not mention God on any page, right? Here's why it awakens, because we should be filled with courage to live selfless lives when we read this. Listen, Esther identifying herself with her people Okay, Esther, identifying herself with her people, should be pointing us to when God identified himself with his. Esther, deciding to become one of her people, should be pointing us to when God decided to become one of his. And Esther, Esther knew the law. Esther knew the law. She knew that an uncalled person entering into the throne room deserved death. And church, Jesus knew the law too. And he knew that an image bearer of God that was stained by sin could not enter into the throne room of God without being undone. And therefore, he did not tell his people to just work harder to earn favor. No, he identified himself with his people and he became one of us. Paul, when writing to the Philippians, he wrote in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he humbled himself by leaving the throne room to come down to earth to live as we live, and yet he lived in perfect obedience even to the point of death on a cross. And it was a cross that was constructed by the same enemy that corrupted the heart of Haman to build a gallows, and yet what the enemy constructed for evil, God used for the enemy's defeat. 
And it was on the cross that, yes, our enemy was defeated. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He won our favor with God. He took our sin. He gave us his rightness. And now he gives us his favor with the Father. Therefore, church, the favor we have with God is not an earned favor. It's not an achieved favor. It's a received favor. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You know what grace is, right? It's this unmerited favor, this undeserved favor. We don't live to earn grace. We live from the grace in which we stand, which we have received. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Living for the favor of others or idols will only lead you to a self-centered, miserable life. Living from the favor you've received from God through faith in Christ will lead you to live a courageously selfless life and a life of joy in walking with Jesus. Listen, church, it is, it is this received favor from God that fuels the mission of the church. It is this received favor from God that, that frees us and empowers us to courageously stop making selfish plans, but instead make selfless plans. It's this received favor from God that frees us and empowers us to courageously go to the nations and to our neighbors to share the gospel. It is this received favor from God that frees us and empowers us to courageously serve people that could never serve us back or return the favor, to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow. It's this received favor from God that frees us and empowers us to courageously give up our earthly comforts in the hopes of heavenly treasures. And it is this received favor from God that frees us and empowers us to courageously speak the truth and love to one another, even when it seems like it might not be well received. It is this received favor from God that frees us and empowers us to take place, to take part in church planting, right? To believing that the power of the gospel that awakened our hearts to faith can also do that in the hearts of the people in this city. It is this received favor from God that frees us and empowers us to courageously at times just stop doing things for the Lord and instead enjoy simply being with the Lord. Church, how freeing and empowering and joy-giving it is to follow Jesus who left the throne room and identified with his people in order that the favor he has with the Father might be given to us and that we might be welcomed into his grace in which we now stand. May we stop living for the favor of others and idols 
and start living from the favor we have already received from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.